chapter number 11, very interesting passage of scripture, has to do with a uh, apostolic flavor and teaching regarding headship and what that all means, somewhat mysterious to some, and so we're going to look into that briefly. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 14 and 15. That's the scriptures that we will use to launch from tonight. Amen. I'm so very, very grateful and thankful for the church. And it's not just a building, praise God, but it's also the people in the church. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's just going to, Hudson's wandering around, praising God. It's all right. Amen. I'm thankful for God's goodness and his greatness. Praise God. Amen. And the people that are in it. Are you thankful for the house of God? Amen. God is very, very good to us. And God brings us from different backgrounds, different places, uh, different colors. And uh, mentioned that the other night as a point of humor. And if that was taken as derogatory, somebody completely missed the point. God brings us all to the house of God. And on that spectrum, it is a spectrum. Uh, some different skin colors, some different heights. This morning at breakfast, the waitress looked at Bishop and said, my, you are really tall. You're not that tall when you're sitting down, when you're standing up. <laughs> That's a big difference there. And so different heights, some are tall, some are short, some are skinny, some are, uh, be careful, I don't want to offend, I don't want to offend any more people, okay? <laughs> Amen. Come from different backgrounds. Amen. But what's really, really cool is we're all here together, praising a name that's above every name and worshiping God together. Amen. I'm thankful for that. Well, let's read this very interesting passage of Scripture. What does it say? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man hath long hair, it is a shame unto him? Question mark. This is Paul. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church here, and he's providing instructions in this particular chapter to the saints that are at Corinth. Verse 15, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So Paul is speaking in the first century to the first century church at Corinth. And he is using a particular word that he uses three times. And I want to point out in each of those cases how he uses it and what he uses it for. And so I want to entitle this lesson here tonight, Dancing Toward the Food Source. Dancing Toward the Food Source. Lord, we thank you and praise you tonight. We ask that your word would be a strength to us. We thank you for your anointing. We want to be guided by your spirit and your ability. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Can be seated, dancing toward the food source. Is anyone here tonight, have you ever taught your dog to shake water from their fur? Praise God. That's Obadiah. He must not be feeling too well. Uh, have you ever taught your dog to shake water from his or her or its fur? 
Uh, no, it's not something that you do because it is something that is instinctive to the dog. They, it's not a learned behavior. It's just something that they do. So when they get wet, if you're close by, expect to get wet with them. And uh, it's just going to happen. In this passage of Scripture, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, is laying out some ordinances about headship and divine structure as it pertains to male and female. That's what he's talking about in, he, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a man and a woman. And he asks the question, judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? And then he follows up that particular question with what we read, and he asks, doth not even nature itself teach you? And so the question here, when we look at this passage of Scripture, is what does the term nature mean? To what does it refer? Because at first, it looks like nature is something to do with creation. Doth not nature or creation teach this? And so that's what it seems like at first glance, the world of nature. Uh, but if this were the case, where would one find evidence of that because when you start looking at nature and you start looking about nature's teaching about hair it doesn't seem to be very apparent and in some cases nature argues against the very opposite thing that Paul is speaking about the animal kingdom shows no such distinction so is it talking about the natural creation or is Paul using this word in a different way and the answer is found in the word itself Paul uses this particular word, and in the Greek, it is phusis. If you transliterate that from Greek to English, it becomes physis. So phusis or physis is the word that Paul is using. And so when you come across words like this, where are you going to go to get an answer? This is somewhat to do with studying and biblical interpretation. You can go to an English dictionary and look up the word nature, and it would give you a definition. But that is um, a secondary source of definition that's based on a primary source, which is the original language. And so if you have the ability to study the original word, like in this case, phusis, you've got to find a lexicon that is going to give you a definition based on the Greek meaning of the word, not necessarily the and the other thing that's difficult as well is you have so many editions of English dictionaries nowadays that it's very, very fluid. So how do I go back and how do I, how do I extract meaning out of specifically what Paul is saying and how he's using this particular word? Then, then I can also look and see that there are also multiple cases in which he's using the same word. And so that provides a study. And that's what we're doing here tonight. We're taking a case study based on what does the word nature have to do with hair? And then in the other cases, what does it have to do in the other places in which Paul uses that particular word? If you're going to go to find uh, some definitions that are based on the original language, a lexicon the lexicon that is one of the standard uh, in the industry for those that study original languages is something that is short. 
it's an acronym. It's called BAGD. They call it BAGD, but it's four authors, Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Danker. And it's quite a volume. It's a pretty, pretty thick volume. And it's taking every word in the New Testament, and it's also looking at the usage of that word, in this case, phusis, and it's also looking at classical Greek definitions in which the word is used in other writings at the same time. So in the first century, this word was used by Paul in the New Testament. And it was also used in other literature outside of the New Testament. And so you can see how other pieces of literature, as well as the New Testament, is using that particular word. And so when Paul says nature, our first inclination is to be led astray because we think nature has to do with creation and it doesn't have to do with creation. The idea comes from the Greek world of ideas. And this is Bible study tonight, so think with me just for a little bit and let's see how Paul utilizes these three occurrences of this particular word. And so this word comes from the world of ideas. Aristotle viewed the world through the lens of ideas and form. And so he had this notion. If you see somebody found this at, Brother Jeremy Brock found this at this gavel at a uh, thrift store. And so he thought it would be cool to bring it up here and have it on the pulpit to establish order in case we needed to, or a weapon. You never know. We're in Bakersfield, and crazy things happen in Bakersfield. So, so don't get too close. All right, there's some. Uh, so Aristotle had this notion of forms and ideas, and, and this came from the first century uh, philosophy um, in which you had a form of something. In this case, this is a this is a gavel. This is a pretty nice gavel, pretty nice looking gavel. It is a gavel and it is the form. And Aristotle would say that's only a representation of the idea. The idea is what's, what's really close to perfection. This is only a representation of the idea. And so he called those things ideals. So this is where if anybody's ever studied in school philosophy, you get the notion of chairness. Every chair has a certain chairness, meaning that you can look at some chairs and say, that's not a close approximation of the ideal chair. And then other chairs you would look at and say, wow, that looks really, really good. And so it's closer to perfection. This gavel has a certain gavelness to it, and it looks really good, and it's probably pretty close but it's not the ideal because the only, only way you could ever understand the ideal is somehow to get close to what is perfection. And that's very, very difficult to do. And so he had this kind of notion, the prettier the chair, the closer to the idea of the chair. And so phusis or physis or nature was the natural condition. It was the quality or the state of something. It was the outward form and appearance of what could not be seen, and it represented a stamp or a character of something. And so instinctively, when I see something, I can say that's closer to the ideal than some other things. It should be something that is instinctive in my mind and in my thinking. It's, it's not a learned behavior, but it's just something that we're able to make the judgment about 
about and on. And so he attributed, it's interesting because in philosophy, he extrapolated God out of the picture. And he said, it's not God, but it's the big idea. And so things get closer to the idea, but he wouldn't establish and say that that was God. And so Paul, understanding that kind of framework, Paul is in that context. And he understands how people are viewing this. This is why when he goes to Mars Hill and he walks among all those altars and there's all these philosophers and everybody's talking about some strange new doctrine or strange thing. Paul enters into that environment and he says, I want you to know. He finds an altar and he says, you're worshiping an altar to the unknown God. Paul said, I want to declare to you who the known God is. The unknown God that you got an altar here. I know him and I'm going to testify about who he is. And so Paul steps into that environment and he says, it's not about an idea, it's about a God. And the closest approximation that you can get to him is found in the word that becomes flesh. As a spirit, you can't see him, but he's walking among us. You can know him and his name is Jesus. He's the same one that has performed signs, miracles, and wonders. And he accomplished Calvary and blood that washes and cleanses and is able to save. Paul would say, that's the unknown God that you're worshiping. You're mixed up in philosophy, but I've come to testify to you that there is one that is greater than a form and an ideal and something that is out there. This God knows who you are, and he's a God that can feel what you go through. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Praise God. So there's a, there's a knowing, and Paul steps into that environment, and he uses the scripture to describe something that they are looking for on Mars Hill. And he uses this verse and this word in kind of the same way. So for Paul, this word nature, I don't want to say nature. That's pretty cool, but I like to say phusis. That's even better. Uh, for Paul, phusis is something that is instinctive. It's not nature creation. It's not lion's manes and everything else because that wouldn't make any sense according to this passage of Scripture. But it's instinct. There's, there should be something that is instinctive that is not something that is learned, but is, it, it's instinctive so that I can make a judgment based upon that. You'll find this in a lot of different types of animals. I started out by talking about a dog that shakes itself. That's something that is instinctive. The dog just does that. Nobody says, okay, shake yourself and shake the water off you. It just does that. Sea turtles newly hatched on a beach will automatically, automatically, it's instinctive. They will automatically move toward the ocean. Nobody's there telling them, okay, little turtle, go that way. No, you got the wrong direction. You got to go this way. It's instinctive to who they are and what they do. A marsupial will climb into its mother's pouch upon being born. And the reason for my title here tonight is that honeybees communicate by dancing in the direction of a food source without formal instruction. Nobody is teaching honeybees to dance toward a food source. It's something that is instinctive in them. And so it's something that they just do. Other examples, you can talk about animals that instinctively fight the way they courtship, 
the way internal, they, the way that they escape, the way that birds build nests, it's all instinctive. You can improve upon the instinct by practice, but instinct is there. And so when Paul, when he says this particular word nature, when he says nature, he's talking about instinctively there's, there is something that has been planted by God in, in the nature or the instinct of humanity that should be known, that should be recognized, that should be understood. This becomes the basis of his arguments every single time he uses the word. And so the first usage of the word is in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and he's talking about instinct and hair. And he's talking about headship. That becomes the framework or the grounding for his discussion about headship, about authority, and about sexual distinctions. He says in verse number 14, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So this is something that is that is basic to apostolic doctrine. Not everywhere, but it's something that we hold true. And this is what Paul is using as a basis for building out the framework or the definition of how that works. Now, you may be here tonight and you say, well, I don't think it's important for a man to have short hair and a woman to have long hair. I probably will not be able to convince you otherwise, but at least understand the argument that Paul is laying forth and the usage of the word that he is using. And he is, he is saying this to the Corinthian church. Even nature teaches you. He insists that the nature of things teaches a man to have short hair. It should be a source of pride then for a woman to have long hair. And it's so important, says Paul, that it not only makes the case for hair length, but something deeper than that. It also speaks to the distinction of the sexes, that there should be instinctively something that allows somebody to say that's a man and that's a woman and that there would be no confusion or no blurring of the lines unless somehow things have gotten marred or confused. And so Paul is establishing that phusis is that instinct, that God, not, not the ideal that creates the form, but God that creates humanity. And God has created man and woman, male and female, in his image. And so it's a handprint of God that you should look like a man, and it's the handprint of God that you should look like a woman. And so Paul in Corinthians says one way to know that is if a man has short hair and a woman has long hair. This is a New Testament teaching in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things are of God. Now, that's an interesting phrase in there. She has power on her head because of the angels. This has caused some to veer off into some things that's a little bit strange in which people have tried to utilize their hair as some kind of 
magical thing. I think what is actually being described in this passage of Scripture is there is the full authority of all of heaven that is applied to the notion that God wants a clear distinction between men and women. And so this, this has the full weight. The divine structure in heaven is stamped up onto maleness and femaleness. It's the natural condition. It's the quality. It's the state which is directly from God. And so I believe that's what that phrase means. It is the outward form and appearance of what cannot be seen but should be instinctively understood. And so although the brunt of this particular passage would seem to be directed toward women, it in fact both, it runs both ways. If a man lets his hair grow long or if a woman cuts her hair, then according to Paul, both have rebelled against what is ordered and designed by God and having done so, rejects God's definition of what makes one male and one female. Now, I can already feel some resistance, but that's okay. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians in the first century church about what he feels is necessary. We're living in the 21st century, and there is a lot, a lot of confusion about what constitutes a man and what constitutes a woman. And so there's a lot of definitions. I, there's a lot of definitions. And so if this is the first time you've ever heard this de definition, that's okay because there's a lot of definitions out there. But I want the scripture to make the definition for me. This is the house of God. This is a church. And so the church allows the word of God to make the definition. Sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes my carnal flesh doesn't like some things. I'd like to just be a liar sometimes. But the word of God says you shouldn't be a liar. I would like to be abuser of mankind sometimes. I'd like to just haul off and punch somebody. But that's not appropriate. That's not right. And that's not a Christian behavior. And the scripture defines that activity as being wrong because you've got to discipline yourself. So you may have tendencies and you may have temptations, but you don't just allow those things to control you. Why? Because the control on your life is the word of God that's directing you and guiding you. And so for many, the error is to jettison God's idea and say, I'm going to look for an alternative one. And then that becomes the world's idea. Did you know right now there are 50 plus gender designations and counting on Facebook? In the UK on Facebook, there are 70, 70 gender designations. Not, I mean, used to be male and female, but now you got two-spirit, cisgender, and there's, there's, there's so many to make your head spin. Uh, and so how, where are we going to, what's going to define who we are and what we are? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there is something that is God-ordained, God-ordered, and designed, and it receives the full approach and support and authority upon the headship. And the headship is supposed to work together. There are different distinctions. There's differences between men and women, but they work together. And this is what he is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. When, when it's ignored or when one becomes antagonistic to God's designation, it leads to a breakdown in biblical identity 
and it produces actions in alignment with sin and the world. And so this is where sexual relationships get marred and tenuous. And so the word is very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, this is the first usage of Paul's nature. But when, when you get things mixed up in terms of sexual headship, then it produces actions in confusion that, that produces problems and confusion as well. And this is where he goes to the second usage of the term nature. It's found in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 26. In Romans chapter 1 and verse number 26, he's talking about a world that goes its own direction, that casts off any kind of structure and framework of faith and the scripture, and he describes that particular world. Uh, if you look at chapter number one, beginning in verse number 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. And so humanity started worshiping creatures instead of worshiping the creator. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use. That's the next use of the word nature right there, natural. The natural use into that which is against nature. It's phusis. Natural is phusis. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Then he describes, when, when you cast off the framework and the, when, when you ignore the handprint and the stamp of instinctiveness of nature that God puts in humanity, and that gets out of whack and out of balance, then it produces a lot of action that then produces a situation that leads to carnality. And he starts describing that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a certain mindset, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is the status of the age. This is the spirit of the age that has consumed itself on all of these things and has tried its very best to turn the tables, move the goalposts until that is what is popular and try to influence so that people are intimidated or influenced by these things and, and, and their approach is cast 
this away and just become what is here in all of these descriptions because that's just who you are and what you are. It's an old-fashioned book. It's old time. It's not relevant today. Just be all these things. But I'm standing in a pulpit tonight telling you that's not what I want to be. I am not here because I don't want to be any of those things. I want the anointing and the presence of God to direct me and to guide me so that I can be a child of God and without the weight of confusion and despair and dysfunction that comes with the consequences of all of those things. But there are no consequences when you lift your hands and you worship God. You don't get up the next day and wonder what you did and who you did it with and where you were and where you came from and where you're going. But you wake up in the morning with the peace that passes understanding. And you walk your day without a burden that's weighing you down. So there are there's some instinctive things, there's some natural things that God has not only placed in headship and structure, but also in human sexuality that should be instinctive. These men in this particular case and these women instinctively should have known, but they left those things and they went their own direction. And so at some point, God gives them up or he turns them over on the idolaters because they exchanged what was natural, what was instinctive. And by doing so, they violated a divine structure and order of sexual relations. Now, I want to say something very, very clear. I think this needs to be emphatically made with this gavel. Just because you have certain temptations, that does not define who you are. There are some temptations that, that I've had that, that will give me nightmares, but I'm not going to give in to those things because that's not who God designed me to be, and that's not he, who he defined me to be. We live in a world that is, is so trying its best to, to inundate us with so very, very much that if we're not careful, we can start entertaining some things because of the way we look, the way that we seem, things that have happened in our past. Maybe there's sexual abuse and stuff that's happened in our past, and we can't figure out why is there pleasure to that, and it should be wrong, but it didn't feel wrong, and all this stuff starts entering into our minds and into our thinking, and the devil tries to come in and use that as leverage and say, that's what you are. I'm telling you, there are things that all of us face that we are tempted with that at that absolutely does not define who you are. It needs to be stated. It needs to be said. We've got young people that are getting bombarded. They are teaching this kind of stuff in the schools. It's an indoctrination. It is a tsunami of this is the way that you're going to act. This is the way you're going to be. This is normal. This is okay. It's compressed itself all the way down into early, early grades where they shouldn't even be thinking about some of this stuff. Whatever happened to innocence? 
But we're going to try to impact and influence the next generation. And so we're going to absolutely have a lot of people that struggle with a lot of things because of all the stuff that they are hearing. Um, this is very, very uncomfortable because this is exactly what we're running up against. And this is the struggle, and it's absolutely real. And so if you're sitting on a pew and you're saying, I don't know what he's talking about. You're like an ostrich that has stuck its head in the sand. This is the stuff that impacts and challenges. It's going to challenge children and young people people and adults. I want you to know that God called you to be a child of God. No matter what my temptation is, that is that is absolutely not my identity. My identity is called of God, sanctified by God, redeemed of God. And there's a handprint on my life. There's a destiny on my life. There's a direction in my life. Praise God. So better be very, very careful what things you throw out and derogatory terms that you use and things that you say. I want to be a, a people that is called by God and his anointing and his presence is a, a spirit of holiness that upholds his word without, without getting nasty and hard and indifferent. We've got a world that's hurting. I'm thankful for the scripture. I know the word is a, a sword and sometimes it kills and it runs against the grain. And tonight this runs against the grain of our present culture. But I want there to be somewhere in this city, an apostolic church. There's a lot of religious uh, organizations that have thrown in the towel, acquiesced, and, and the scripture doesn't even mean anything anymore. This is not my opinion. This is not me. This is not my doctrine. This is the word of God. I'm just reading the scripture tonight and so Paul said instinct there should be something instinctive in you that should be able to say there's a distinction between men and women I've, ta I've taught this multiple times but there were times that I've talked to young people about when people ask them why do you why do you not cut your hair our doctrine and our teaching comes out of first Corinthians chapter number 11 and and how do you respond to that you don't respond well we just don't you, you got to have an answer and so the answer that's very, very clear according to this particular usage of that word for Paul is because God values and honors a distinction between the sexes. And you know what? A couple years ago, that you could have gotten by with that. I mean, you could have said that and people would have understood that and they, they might have even accepted it. You say that now and all hell can break loose because you're, you're, a, hate, you're, you're a hate monger. Uh, you don't know what you're talking about. The scripture is hate speech and, and, and on and on and on. But this is what Paul is saying. Paul says instinctively, God has placed something in us in which we should be able to determine or tell. And, and if we don't, we live in a fallen world and sometimes what God tries to put his handprint on, we mar it, we mess it up, we redefine it. We try to make the bad look good and the good look bad. We, the devil's got a great marketing scheme. And so he comes out with all this slick-looking stuff and all the right people to say it. And then their actions that are produced based on that misunderstanding that leads into a Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 world in which we face all of these consequences of what sin is. It's amazing that that last scripture says, who knowing the judgment of God, 
that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them they in, as far as you can go they have pleasure in that and they're more excited about that so that people become desensitized what once was shocking is no longer shocking anymore and so it, it moves and then that's no longer shocking anymore so then it moves again and so then we live in a culture and in a world where, where not a whole lot shocks anybody anymore because that's just how people are that's just Human nature. That's not what I want. That's not what God wants in the church. He wants a people that are righteous and a people who are holy. And so instead of talking about all the things and having pleasure in the things that are wrong, we need to step up and stand up and say aloud and have pleasure in people who are trying to do things right and trying to live a godly life. We need to, we, we need to have pleasure in them. You may have fallen, but get back up because God's going to be with you and God's going to use you and he, he's going to pluck you out of miry clay. I want to get excited about those kind of things and those kind of people and have pleasure in them. Oh, don't, don't talk about people that are bringing people to church. Well, they must be associated to something else and that's why they're coming. They're coming. Give them a chance. They just might receive the Holy Ghost when they're coming. Have pleasure in those that are doing what is right and building those people up. Paul says instinctively we should understand and recognize headship and instinctively we should also understand sexuality and how God intends it to be among his creation. <clears throat> so there must be a divine agent that acts as a catalyst of overcoming power and authority. Paul notes the Holy Ghost does this for the Gentiles who are supposedly outside the graces of the Jews and the law. Having no law, they're defined as heathen and carnal. And by the way, you're categorized as a Gentile. Everybody say, woe is me. I'm not a Jew. I don't have the law. And so I'm categorized as something that's, oh, it's those people who are carnal and, and they're heathen out there. Paul uses the first term, phusis as it pertains to hair the second time he uses it as it pertains to sexual relationships and the third time he uses it to talk about you and the Holy Ghost and watch what he says in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 14 for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by what? Do by nature, there it is again. Paul uses this three times in his writing, and they all have great, great significance. The Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing 
one another. What Paul was saying is it's an amazing thing that God has done. When the Gentiles, those heathen, those people that are out there, those carnal folks, those people on the outside of the law, and they're not Jewish, those folks out there, when the Holy Ghost comes into their life, because this is what God has wanted to do from the very beginning with the promise that he gave to Abraham, when he pours out his spirit on those people and they get the Holy Ghost, even though they don't even have the law, they start doing the very things that the law is prescribing and asking. The Jews could never live up to the law. It was a schoolmaster, one writer said. It pointed out where you were wrong but it didn't give you the ability or the power to overcome the wrong and the carnality that you were stuck in but the Holy Ghost when it's poured out even among the heathen Gentiles when the Holy Ghost comes into their life they start doing the stuff that the law prescribes even though they don't even have a law this is the power of the anointing of God this is the power of the Holy Ghost it starts working on me and directing me and changing me and transforming me sometimes people don't even have to tell me what I should do or shouldn't do I just know how do I know because Jesus moved into my life and the devil was kicked out and carnality was kicked out and I cleaned house and God's residing in my house and when he's residing in my house he directs me he guides me he teaches me so I start jettisoning things overboard I start abandoning some things I start cleaning some things out. Sometimes people may say, you know, it might be a good idea if you stop hanging around those friends or those things. But in many cases, if somebody really gets a real good dose of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of truth, the comforter, the spirit of truth starts saying, you know what? You've been living a life that has been a life of degradation and fear and pain and suffering and anguish. And I've got something much, much better for you. And when he comes in, and everything else that I've been trying to keep in my house that have been residents in my house when they are removed God starts directing me and guiding me many times nobody has to tell me anything because I just instinctively that's what the Holy Ghost does instinctively naturally I start recognizing I don't want to be a sinner I want to be a saint of God I don't want to walk in unrighteousness I want to walk in righteousness Gentiles through the Holy Ghost are doing by instinct what is naturally ordered by the Torah or the law even though they don't have it or don't even know it but it's written on their heart God's directing this is the power of the Holy Ghost Paul is pointing out the significance of nature, and he's trying to convince the Jewish readers that the Old Testament pattern has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit. And according to Paul, this was God's design and his divine order. 
and the law in and of itself was ineffective. It couldn't do the job. It didn't do the job. But what does do the job and what puts a spiritual instinct in us is the anointing of God and the Holy Ghost. And so this spiritual fulfillment as we stand together in the house of God today, praise God. Praise God. Actually, let's pray right now that that the word, which sometimes can be difficult and hard, is also connected to the spirit, which brings life. Praise God. Let's pray together right now. God, I thank you and praise you for your spirit and your anointing that provides to us instinctively, gives some things to us. Your word, your handprint on our life directs us and gives us the ability to understand exactly what you designed and what you ordered and what you have created. Praise God. And what you want our lives to be. Praise God. Praise God. This spiritual fulfillment. Amen. The Gentiles living in such a radical fashion is because of an instinctive, natural, from heaven to earth life. I want to live a heaven to earth life. I just want to attribute not an ideal to a form. I want to attribute a God to a formation. And God in a heavenly realm is forming me in an earthly realm. Isn't this what Jesus told the disciples to pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to live a heaven to earth life. And so these Gentiles are living in such a radical fashion. And because of this instinctive Holy Ghost working in their life, this natural heaven to earth life, in which their conscience and thought processes are controlled without the law because it's written on their heart. Praise God. Paul, in three cases, uses the word nature or natural to describe three distinct things. And in every single one of them, they are three areas in our present age that's so extremely vitally important. The church has to know and understand we need men of God and we need women of God. understand and understand and know the distinction between God's handprint and that there are relationships that God has designed and ordered that's his handprint and how are we going to live in that generation and that culture and know that and that become a foundation in our life it's going to be through the spirit of God and the Holy Ghost of God in our life that provides us instinctively the ability to say I'm not going there I'm not listening to that. I'm not doing that. It's not a long list of rules that are written out, but it's written on our heart because God's directing us and guiding us. We need to be a people of God that are sensitive to his spirit. And for a few moments tonight in conclusion, let's, let's just be sensitive to the Holy Ghost and ask God to help every single one of us, every person in this place, in the world that we live in. God, I want you to direct me. Lift up your voice and let's 
praise him and pray just for a moment in conclusion. I want you to direct me and guide me. I want to be a person that is pursuing holiness and righteousness. I may not measure up and may not be completely perfect, but God, I'm striving for something. Praise God, I'm striving, so I'm reaching for something. I want your anointing and your presence to mold and shape and fashion my life. And many times through prayer and seeking you, you're a God that directs me. You're a God that guides me. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word. So you direct me down the right path. You direct me down the right road. You provide to me in situations and you bring counsel to me. Praise God. Everything that I am and everything that I'm going through, you're a God that directs me through your anointing and your presence. Let there be a sensitivity, O Lamb of God. Hallelujah. And each and every one of us as we stand before you in the house of God today, we give to you thanks in Jesus' name. I believe that Paul was speaking, yes, to a first century church, but I believe it was a message also to a 21st century church. I think it's the same today. And we're going to fa face the same adversity that Paul faced. If he had to speak it and say it, it was a problem then, just as it is a problem now. Praise God. But if you let the Holy Ghost direct you and guide you, God will center you in his appointment, his plan, his order, and his design upon your life. Praise God. Amen, amen. Somebody say amen. Amen. We always meet and greet somebody. Show yourself friendly. Turn around. Smile at them. Tell them it was good to see you.